0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the social benefits of high taxation as the U.S. gears up for our first genuine debate on raising taxes in a long time, with an eye toward the life-improving programs that money could fund. Clips today come from Counterspin, Pitchfork Economics, The Zero Hour, In Deep with Angie Coiro, and Freakonomics Radio.
1: One in three GoFundMe campaigns in this country are for medical expenses. One in five households have zero or negative wealth. Millions of people are one paycheck away from hardship. And this is the same society in which there are people who can't remember how many houses they own or are puzzled about why furloughed federal workers would be going to food banks. Inequality is a life-or-death issue, which makes it especially disconcerting that some folks with media megaphones seem proudly ignorant of the basic mechanisms by which resources are distributed. Some myths and misunderstandings are being thrown into relief, as we're seeing a strikingly bold, for recent times, conversation about progressive taxation, occasioned by proposals from New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, among others. But if the present debate goes further than we're used to, does it go far enough? Dean Baker is co-founder and senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He joins us now by phone from Utah. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dean Baker.
2: Thanks a lot for having me on.
1: Well, corporate media have trouble or often don't bother to distinguish between ideas and those espousing them. So when Ocasio-Cortez suggests the idea of a top marginal tax rate of 70%, that gets sucked into the vortex of her coverage, you know, coverage of her as with wealth tax proposals from Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Before we talk about the limits of those ideas, I wonder if you could just talk a bit about both top marginal tax rates and increased taxes on extreme wealth, given that media often present those ideas as kind of ideas from Mars or proof that these politicians are, are wild-eyed fantasists.
2: Yeah, well, the reaction uh, to both proposals has been fascinating, uh, both the uh, public reaction where there's clearly been a lot of support. People are saying, yeah, you have a lot of real rich people. Why shouldn't they pay more in taxes? But more so from the media and, you know, from some establishment politicians. So the reaction is, oh, here's flaky Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, you know, where she'd get off 70%. And in fact, that's the number that many of the world's most prominent tax economists have said. This is the maximum tax rate you can – maximum tax rate in the sense maximum amount of revenue. And there was an article, widely read article by Peter Diamond, who's a professor at MIT, and Manuel Saez, who's at Berkeley, both very, very prominent. Diamond won Nobel Prize says John Bates Clark Award, two of the most prestigious awards you can get in the profession. So these are people in very high standing. And they came up with that number, you know, and there were all sorts of qualifications and reservations, but in any case, they didn't think it was ridiculous So when you have a fresh uh, new member of Congress propose that, well, the media jumped on that like, oh, she's just being flaky. And, in fact, it's a very reasonable thing to put on the table, whether that's the right rate. You know, of course, you could debate that. But it certainly was not a ridiculous proposal. And, you know, again, uh, Paul Krugman, had a very nice piece where he was contrasting that with the Republican proposals to cut taxes on the rich, where they were saying that they would pay for themselves, which was ridiculous. But that was treated like these are serious people. So it's been fascinating that there's been such a rush to dismiss these as kind of far out proposals by radical leftists when they're reasonable proposals, which, again, is not to say that they're necessarily the best policy, but they're certainly reasonable proposals to put on the table and to be debated.
1: Well, we read that Michael Dell, who has $30 billion or so at uh, the World Economic Forum, apparently said, Name a country where that's worked ever, the 70% top marginal rate, um, missing something, (laughs) you could say.
2: Yeah, of course, one of his co-panelists said the United States, because that was, in fact, the rate in the United States until uh, Ronald Reagan lowered it with his tax cuts in 1981. And if we go back a little further, it was 90% in the Eisenhower days. Kennedy lowered it to 70%. So, again, one could argue whether these are the best rates, but to treat this as a crazy uh, idea out of, you know, far left field is, is just wrong. And, you know, some of the back and forth, because I, I was on Twitter with uh, Dell and, you know, there were others involved, obviously. And what what I find most striking here, the Dell's kind of a, a poster child here, because what is Dell's expertise in this area? He's very rich, no doubt about that, but he obviously knows nothing. About tax rates. I mean, again, we could disagree, 70% the right rate? But to act like that's just impossible, we're going to see our economy collapse, that's nuts. He knows nothing about it. He just has $30 billion, so therefore he thinks he's qualified to talk about it.
1: <laughs> well, it's good, I think, that we're talking about taxing extremely high incomes and wealth for all kinds of reasons. The LA Times' Michael Hiltzik was saying, You know, it helps move us away from this notion that wealth is self-made, you know, that these folks owe nothing to society, and it disrupts the fallacy of trickle-down. But having said that, it does take the form of a give-back. You know, you've got an absurd amount of money, so you should throw some back in the pot because that's the socially decent thing to do. You suggest in this recent piece for Truthout that while that is not wrong— it's not getting to the crux, the bigger source of the rise in inequality.
2: Yeah, so the point I made in that piece, and really I've made in much of my writings over the last you know 10 or 15 years, is that the distribution of income is not something that just happens. It depends on how we structure the economy. And I would say the economy is pretty much infinitely malleable. We could structure it all sorts of different ways. And my favorite example here, just because it's so blatant, is I like to say – how rich would Bill Gates be if he didn't have copyright or patent monopolies on windows software. So if anyone in the world could just start producing mass producing computers and copy in windows and all the other Microsoft software, and they don't even have to send them a thank you note. Well, needless to say, He would not be one of the richest people in the world. He wouldn't have a $100 billion. I'm sure he'd do fine. But, you know, the fact that someone like Bill Gates could become incredibly wealthy was because of how we designed that market. And it's pretty much the same story everywhere you look. Finance, where would all these uh, Goldman Sachs guys be if we didn't have the bailout in 08 and we just let the market run its course? I mean, there's many other ways we subsidize finance as well. Corporate CEOs, they were always well paid, but if you go back to the pay standards of the sixties and seventies, they'd be getting two or three million a year, not thirty and forty million. So we structure rules that allow people to get incredibly wealthy. And I really prefer that to be the focus, both because as a practical matter, it's much harder to get the money back once they have it. I mean there's all sorts of practical issues that people have rightly raised. Do you want know, Elizabeth Warren says, let's tax the wealth? Well They're not just going to hand it over to you. It's going to be hard to do. It doesn't say it's not something we might want to do, but it's going to be hard. And secondly, the political issue, if we act as though, well, you know, Bill Gates got that fair and square. We shouldn't take any of it back. If you go, well, we could have kind of structured it differently and then Bill Gates won't have it. And then we don't even have to have this discussion.
1: I wonder... Do you think it's a trap to talk about these things in terms of revenue, in terms of how much money it would bring to the economy? I read a piece by Vanessa Williamson from Brookings where she said that taxes on the very wealthy should be judged by their societal impact and not simply by their revenues, and that it has to do with the fact that just having some people be so wildly wealthy is incompatible with democracy, and so we shouldn't get too hung up on how much money – It would give to the economy to to institute some of these changes. What do you what do you make of that?
2: I I think it's a very important point. And I remember some years ago, there was a piece on the estate tax that was done by Alicia Minnell, who's uh, now at Boston College. And she came up with some figure that we get a relatively small amount of revenue you know, from the estate tax. I'm saying relatively small, it's still substantial, but much less than if you just said, oh, here's how many rich people died and we tax it at a 40% rate. Here's what you, we, we get a very small amount relative to that. But she wasn't writing as a critic of the tax because what you, the two points she was making, one is exactly this one. The part of the story is we don't want massive amounts of wealth to be handed down. So you get Donald Trump or his kid, you know, walking away with billions and something, having all this political influence. But the other is, part of what they do to avoid the tax is do things like start foundations like the Ford Foundation and the Gates Foundation. Now, those aren't my dreams. I mean, there's a lot of bad things I could say about the way those foundations are run, but the point is that's not altogether a loss for society because they do do some good things. So to act like, oh, they aren't going to pay the tax, they're just going to start a foundation that provides inoculations to children in Africa. Well, that's not a bad thing. So To just look at it and say, okay, how much revenue are we getting from the tax? That is missing the point.
1: Well, and then, though, going back to Michael Dell, he said, you know, my wife and I set up a foundation, and we would have contributed quite a bit more than a 70% tax rate on my annual income, and I feel much more comfortable with our ability as a private donation to allocate those funds than I do giving them to the government.
2: Well, I guess what I'd have to tell the Michael Dell he he still could do that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But but I think what people are saying is the problem isn't whether that's true in real numbers, the problem is running a society on no bless oblige, you know. That's
2: Yeah, no, we don't want to have to depend on you know, I wasn't going to go into my criticisms of the Gates Foundation the others, but yeah, we don't want to depend on their goodwill. I mean, people need health care, they need education, you know, all the other necessities of life and it shouldn't depend on whether Michael Dell's, he and his wife are good people and they're going to contribute to that. I mean, it's nice if they want to, but that shouldn't be what we depend on.
1: Well, a poll from that Pinko Rag Business Insider showed that Ocasio Cortez's proposal, the 70% top marginal tax rate, was more popular than the GOP tax cuts, uh, which you alluded to before. People don't even think that socialism is a curse word anymore, which removes a real arrow from some folks' quiver. But I think we want to say that none of these proposals working on pre-tax income, post-tax income, they're not opponents of one another as proposals, right? And and other things like raising the minimum wage could fit in there, too. Um I guess it just does seem like more ideas are on the table than we've grown accustomed to. And I wonder how we keep that window open and how we keep pushing for more.
2: Well, it has been great that, you know, you have people put it on the table and there's been a good popular response. And I have to say, to some extent, our best allies under this have been the... the Republicans and conservatives, because they've said things that are just so absurd. I mean, uh, I remember Scott Walker, the former governor of Wisconsin, was criticizing uh, Ocasio-Cortez's 70% proposal, and he's talking to uh, his account. He's talking to fifth graders, and he says, so you do some work for your grandmother, and she gives you $10, and the government takes seven of it. He goes "That," and they all go, that's not fair. Of course, it has nothing to do with her proposal. She's talking about people get over $10 million, so over $10 million. And so I don't know whether Scott Walker literally doesn't understand a marginal tax rate or he's just being dishonest about it but he publicized this and needless to say he got raked over the coals for it Um, my guess is he won't do that again but it has certainly pushed the window on how we could talk about these things so in that sense we don't all have to agree that a B or C is the best or you know why would is we probably want a mix of a B and C but in any case it's certainly expanded the the window of discussion in a really positive way.
3: Our next guest is an old friend of mine, Bruce Bartlett, who, among other things, was a treasury official in the George H.W. Bush administration and was part of the economics team for the Reagan White House. Uh, He was one of uh, the authors of Supply Side Economics, uh, a super experienced uh, economic uh, policymaker, and has become... Recently a big critic of supply-side economics, which he believed at the time in the late 70s, early 80s was appropriate, but now believes is completely bogus and uh, mismatched for the economic circumstances of our day. Bruce also knows more about tax policy than any single person I've ever met and has a great book out on the tax system uh, that everybody should read called The Benefit and the Burden, which gives you a real picture of the form And Function of the American tax system and what we could do to improve it in any case Bruce is an awesome guy and a truth teller and has gotten in a lot of trouble himself for being uh, transparent and uh, willing to confront some of his friends and allies
4: Hi Bruce, how are you okay? Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't we just start off by kind of a general question about what your role was uh, in the Reagan administration and your role in the Reagan tax cuts?
5: My role in the Reagan tax cuts started back in the 1970s. Uh, I had gotten a job on Capitol Hill working for uh, Ron Paul, who was defeated uh, the same year I went to work for him, 1976. And this led me to look for another job, and I found one working for Jack Kemp, a a former professional football player who represented uh, the Buffalo suburbs in New York. And he was very interested in in the tax issue, uh, and he put me to work basically on developing that interest. And uh, in 1977, he asked me to draft a bill that would duplicate the Kennedy tax cut of the early 1960s. And it was known as the Kemper Roth bill. Uh, Ronald Reagan endorsed it in his run for the white house. And when he got elected, he uh, sent that legislation to Capitol Hill and it was enacted into law in uh, August of 1981. And then in 1987, I went to work in the Office of Policy Development at the White House and I worked there for two years and then went over to the Treasury Department where I worked throughout the George H.W. Bush administration.
4: Okay, so you were there at the beginning then at the creation of the response to uh, what was going on um, economically and what was so different in the 70s. what, What was happening then versus what's going on now? What made you think that tax cuts were the way to go?
5: The most important difference between then and now is inflation. We had a lot of inflation, and and I think people today, you know, many young people have never experienced uh, anything like an inflationary environment. Uh, and many people my age have, have forgotten about it, but it really riveted politicians' attention, uh, the way no other economic issue really has since the 1930s. And one of the effects of inflation was to push people up into higher tax brackets. And indeed, taxes were rising very, very rapidly, very substantially, actually mainly for uh, uh, average people. Because if you think about it, if a rich person is already in the top tax bracket, they have no higher brackets to be pushed into, you see. So the, the the effect of what was called bracket creep was largely on average people.
4: And so the thinking was then what? Why was it going to be such a great solution to high inflation to cut taxes? What was the thinking?
5: Jack Kemp believed that inflation was essentially a monetary phenomenon, and he supported a tight money policy by the Federal Reserve. But He was concerned that tight money would cause the economy to slow down, and it did. It caused a a big recession in 1980 and another in 1981, and he thought that a tax cut would help cushion the blow and help keep the economy going as it transitioned from high inflation to low inflation. He also thought that inflation was, in a sense, too much money chasing too few goods and services so if a tax cut led to an increase in the production of goods and services uh, then it would be anti-inflationary
4: and one of the things that we forget about the Reagan era is that taxes actually were raised later so what was what was the story with that
5: well after the 1981 tax cut uh, everybody was suddenly uh, had their attention focused on the budget deficit and uh, Reagan supported a big tax increase in 1982 called the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act that raised taxes by 1% of GDP, which was a very uh, large tax increase, and he supported 10 other tax increases in the subsequent years of his administration. And by 1988, he had enacted tax increases that took back half of the 1981 tax cut so he uh... he was perfectly willing to support higher revenues uh... to bring the deficit down And that's, of course, some, a big difference between him and today's Republicans who will never support one penny of tax increase for any reason whatsoever.
4: Yeah. So that's really become the dogma. And, and you, of course, were kind of there at the creation of that dogma. And I think a little bit about other people have maybe renounced, uh, dogma, like, you know, Robert McNamara and the Vietnam War or, you know, others who've, who've been so famous for, for renouncing, um, Talk to me a little bit about uh, what brought you to um, be in a different place around tax cuts in this era, in the George W. Bush era. Talk a little bit about that.
5: Well, my uh, the, the transition for me began in November of 2003. Uh, that was when the Republican Party, to which I was then comfortably a member of, enacted uh, the Medicare Part D program, which Uh, was a huge, unfunded uh, entitlement program. Now, I never had any problem with adding prescription drugs to the Medicare program. I just thought it was grossly irresponsible to pass this legislation without a penny of financing. It was just all uh, on the national credit card, a big increase in the budget deficit. And I naively thought that Republicans were opposed to deficits in those days.
4: They talked a big game about that. They still do. What happened? Yeah.
5: Well, the truth is they're rank hypocrites and liars.
4: I was waiting for you to say that. Thank you. OK.
5: Well, actually, what uh, what I've learned over the years is that uh, Republicans actually love deficits because they love talking about deficits. They love using deficits as an excuse to slash programs for the poor and the middle class. That's why they cut taxes whenever there's the hint of getting control of the deficit. For example, we had huge budget surpluses. At the end of the 1990s, the Republicans just pissed all that away with huge tax cuts that did nothing whatsoever to stimulate the economy. And of course, they've done the same thing uh, in 2017. And so what, what I call this is something called Star of the Beast, uh, which is a Republican theory that the only way you can cut spending is by having deficits so large that there is no other choice. So Republicans, their policy is to intentionally create large deficits through tax cuts, use those deficits as an excuse to slash benefits for the poor and middle class. When the deficits come down, they simply enact more tax cuts and start the process all over again. And basically, they will continue this until there's nothing left of the safety net till government does absolutely nothing except national defense.
4: And that sounds like a pretty important piece of truth telling. Uh, What happened when you started saying things like this?
5: Well, what I realized immediately is that deficits were going to get so large, the taxes would have to be increased. I didn't uh, foresee the determination of Republicans to avoid any tax whatsoever and i thought that they would be forced into being responsible and i was at the time very strongly opposed to a tax increase so i felt that the the republican policy was was contrary to to republican policy uh that they were going to bring about a tax increase uh that didn't really work out but it did open my eyes i think to you know the the utter hypocrisy of of the party I belong to. And what happened is I sort of started seeing the glass as half empty rather than half full. And having broken with my party on this one issue, I gradually began breaking with them on lots of other issues. And by 2006, I uh, I publicly declared myself to be an independent and no longer a member of the Republican Party. And I wrote a book, highly critical of George W. Bush. And honestly, at the time, I thought I was just the first guy out of the gate, and that lots of other conservatives and libertarians uh, who felt like I did about uh, the budget and uh, the deficits and things like that would uh, would follow me out the door. And, uh, and I was shocked when nobody followed <laughs> me out so the door. So when you call
4: the president an imposter, people don't follow you out the door. Is that what you found?
5: Well, I, I did think that uh, Bush was, was an imposter uh, of, by pretending to be a conservative. I thought he was a terrible uh, – I, I don't want to say liberal, but he was certainly not uh, a fiscal conservative. He, as I said, had huge deficits. If we had simply kept uh, budget policy on automatic pilot where it was in January 2001 when Bush took took office, by the time he left office – We would have literally paid off the national debt, Uh, but in fact, the national debt doubled. And it's a source of deep frustration to me that the major media still treat the Republicans as if they are the party of fiscal responsibility, when in fact, all of the evidence of the last 20-some years is exactly the opposite. I mean, the only presidents who have really uh, reduced the deficit are Clinton and Obama, Bush and Trump have vastly increased it. Yet, you cannot get the media to focus on this and talk about the truth of the matter. They still have this notion that re- the Democrats are the wild-eyed spenders and the Republicans are the, the sober budget balancers. It's just an utter nonsense.
4: And what would it take to change that? You have a pretty stiff critique of the Democratic Party as well. What needs to be in place to really shift And myth bust, because as you point out, they're really hypocrites when it comes to spending. What would it take?
5: uh, Well, I think Democrats should stop being tax collectors for the Republican tax cuts. I think that what has been missing in public policy since 1989 is a strong and vocal left socialist liberal movement in this country that could pull the Democratic Party to the left, the same way the Tea Party and the many, many different organizations on the right, funded by the Kochs and, and other rich billionaires that pull the Republican Party to the right. I think what's happened is that both parties have moved to the right, and the Democrats have, have stayed relatively as far to the left of the Republicans as they've always been. It's just that because the Republicans are further right, they're now not really on the objective left at all. They're in the center.
4: Right. Do you have any advice for people out there who might be wanting to be truth-tellers themselves but are worried about becoming pariahs? What have you learned over the years?
5: Well, uh, all I can say is things change, okay? I mean, when I was young, one of the reasons I joined... The conservative movement, the Republican parties, because the left, the progressive movement, the the Democratic Party was was dominant. I mean, it, we were coming out of the Great Society. We had we had huge big government programs and high taxes, and the media was was truly quite liberal. Uh, but that has all changed. It's now 180 degrees opposite. The right is now in a very dominant position in the media and in government and the only thing I can say is if it changed once in one direction it can change again back into another direction I would point to uh, the 1880s in American history when the the robber barons and uh, and so on were were, uh, you know very very powerful and that was and it was the politics were very similar to those of today but that was followed by the progressive era and a movement back in the other direction so i think you know we're overdue for realignment
6: The Democrats become the party of so called fiscal responsibility, and should they be the party of fiscal responsibility? Our next guest has written an excellent piece on that for uh, Jacobin Magazine entitled The Democrats are Eisenhower Republicans. Josh Mound is a postdoctoral fellow uh, at the University of Virginia. He has a Ph.D. in history and sociology uh, from the University of Michigan, and he joins us now. Josh, thanks for coming on the program.
7: Thank you for having me.
6: So let's start with this. What do you mean when you say that the Democrats are Eisenhower Republicans?
7: Well, prior to the right turn among the GOP in economic policy, during the Eisenhower era, Republicans were really known as the party of balanced budgets. They were incredibly afraid of deficits because they were afraid that deficits would stoke inflation. And really, after the Goldwater nomination and the eventual sort of Reagan revolution in the party, Republicans became very comfortable with deficits. And Democrats responded to that by moving to the right themselves and trying to become the party of fiscal responsibility. And Bill Clinton had this famous quote that he said privately after he took office when some of his economic advisors, including Robert Rubin, the banker, advised him to sort of scale back his already pretty modest spending plans that he had run on in 92 and instead focus on reducing the deficit that had been left from Reagan. So really over this period between the 1950s and the 1990s you sort of have the two parties really reversing positions with the republicans going from being the party of balanced budgets to the democrats taking up that mantle.
6: Yeah, and I guess the implicate I think that's exactly right and 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 one of the implications for a policy in that and for politics is that when republicans give up The mantle of a balanced budget, that means they can cut taxes for the wealthy and corporations as much as they want without worrying about the fiscal implications of that. When Democrats take on the mantle of quote unquote fiscal responsibility, and we can talk about what that really means, but when they take on that mantle, that means they're embracing the idea that maybe we don't have the money to do the things that Democrats are best known for, like Medicare, Social Security, uh, infrastructure, job creation, that maybe they have to let go of all of that in the name of quote-unquote fiscal responsibility. Is that a fair uh, interpretation?
7: I think that's exactly right. And I, I would really say that it's the Democrats sort of voluntarily playing by a different set of rules. Republicans decided that as Dick Cheney said, deficits don't matter. And for Democrats, you know, since Clinton, they've decided that deficits very much do matter. And so it's, you know, a self-imposed limitation that Republicans have also very cleverly, uh, you know, used against Democrats by ignoring deficits when there's a Republican president, and then when there's a Democratic president, all of a sudden Republicans are upset about deficits again. And when Democrats have set themselves up as being the party fiscal responsibility, they really don't have, you know, a good position to kind of counteract or argue against Republicans' worries about the deficit once you have a Democratic president.
6: You know, they're still doing it too. I've I've met leaders in Congress and others, and I've seen uh, others just uh, say talk about fiscal responsibility. It's really uh, and, and say proudly that they believe in pay go. You know, pay as you go, meaning we won't propose any program unless there is guaranteed money to pay for it. But a lot of the economists I know and and trust say that it's it's the wrong focus, certainly at the wrong time, that government deficits are exaggerated as a problem, that it's much more important to have a robust economy and address inequality and some of the other things. So I wonder, Josh Mount, to what extent this is the Democrats getting played by Republicans Republicans and maybe following a broken f- economic philosophy, and to what extent uh, it, they've actually internalized a kind of economic conservatism, maybe because their donors want it or for whatever reason, and are winding up uh, really being ideologically a very different party than people think of them as being.
7: I, I think it's actually a little bit of both. Um, Republicans very much engineer deficits. Um, Conservative activists have been open about this. Um, Milton Friedman advised Barry Goldwater in 1964 to, you know, abandon the traditional Eisenhower focus on balanced budgets and instead just propose tax cuts and say that growth would pay for them, which is actually an idea that, you know, goes back even further to um, the Calvin Coolidge era and Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary under several Republican presidents. And this whole idea that tax cuts pay for themselves We can run deficits as long as it's tax cuts and eventually it'll all balance out through the fantastic growth that the market will unleash is now really Republican dogma that they use to wave away deficits. When I think in reality, you know, most Republicans understand that they are going to generate deficits. But the idea is, as Friedman and others have stated, we'll just leave those deficits for Democrats. And that means they'll sort of have fiscal handcuffs when they come into office and it will be Democrats making hard choices about What to cut or whose taxes to raise while Republicans can sort of funnel money towards, you know, the upper half of the income distribution and often just the upper, you know, five or 1% through their tax cuts. And, you know, Democrats end up paying the price. But I think the other half of that, as you mentioned, is that Democrats have very much you know, internalize this idea that they should be the party of fiscal responsibility. So it's not just that Republicans are cleverly playing Democrats. It's that Democrats have decided for a variety of reasons. I think donors are one of them. Democratic donors are much more fiscally conservative than the rank and file of the party. And really going back to uh, McGovern's loss in the early 70s, you know, a lot of conservative Democrats had blamed that on McGovern proposing big spending programs. And the inflation of the 1970s was used by conservatives and really by a lot of Democrats as a reason to be afraid of big government programs, even though, you know, in reality, the inflation of the 1970s wasn't because of deficits. It was because of, you know, supply shocks like the oil crisis. that sort of all fed its way into politics and now you have this commitment to the democrats to try to you know please donors please the upper income you know well-off whites that the sort of new democrats of clinton really wanted to court and also republicans sort of using that against democrats by running deficits and making the democrats job even harder once they're in office
8: Probably like a lot of Americans in that my knowledge of other countries is pretty scant. And I seem to recall when I was a teenager, you studied a little bit about world economics, that there was this place where people poured money into the common good and the children were well-educated and that sort of thing. And I guess that I approached your book with the idea that Scandinavia has always been this way, but oh. has not been, it, it's earned its place oh, this way. Oh,
9: absolutely. A, a century ago, they were a mess. In fact, there was the whole century ago and 50 years prior to to that that up to that they were a country that was hemorrhaging their its population uh, Swedes were coming to the US, Norwegians were coming to the US and Canada and Australia. People were searching for some place that had opportunity. And because warped. They, had,
8: they were searching for work.
9: And <laughs> exactly, exactly, because their economies were not producing the jobs. They had tremendous poverty. They had only a pretend democracy instead of real democracy. So uh, social mobility was pretty impossible for, for, you know, working class people. It was a mess. So they had to turn themselves around to get to where they are now which is the top top tier you know of mm-hmm. of uh, by almost any economic measurement you can make. They even have more entrepreneurs per capita than the United States does which really did surprise me actually, but they ha- they have uh, the highest achievement in shared prosperity. They even got rid of poverty. They decided poverty. Yeah, I know it's 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 really wild for an American to think of that, mm-hmm. but they decided poverty is v- So, 19th century, why would anybody bother with poverty (laughs) if if they were a wealthy country? So they thought, well, let's just roll up our sleeves and and see what can be done. I have a whole chapter on the number of policies that it took. In other words, there was no one magic bullet on it. It had to take a number of uh, interlocking policies that enabled them to get rid of poverty. And by the first time I got there, which was 1959, they had already pretty much gotten rid of poverty.
10: Well,
8: let's talk about how – you talk about the entrepreneurs. And here Mm -hmm. in America, right now, we're sitting in Silicon Valley. So here, there's this iconic vision of what you can be as an entrepreneur. You could start the next Amazon. You could start the next Google. And you would get all the accompanying wealth that Mm -hmm. goes Mm – this is off the top of my head, but I think I heard that Jeff Bezos at last count, based in the Northwest, is worth personally $12 dollars. Mm, mm. And it strikes me from Viking Economics that whereas it's all very lovely to be worth 12 billion dollars personally, that's not the priority of the average Scandinavian.
9: Their attitude toward entrepreneurship is that it's an it's a creative act. It's like a sculptor or an artist or somebody who loves to write Broadway musicals, something like that. It's a manifestation. It's, it's a putting together of stuff that most of us are not talented to do, but entrepreneurs happen to be talented to do. So from their, the Nordic point of view, the entrepreneurs deserve support. To be able to make their dream come true. You know, maybe they start in the garage, but they need more support. They get the support. They need, uh, more, more higher education. Let's say, you know, they need more engineering understanding in order to do more technology or more scientific understanding in order to do biological kinds of entrepreneurship or maybe some other kind they want to do. Um, all that's free and available to them, right? So the idea is support our entrepreneurs. They are the heart of innovation for an economy and entrepreneurs are creatives that is to say their satisfaction comes not from 12 billion waiting at the end of the rainbow their satisfaction comes like it does for a sculptor or like it does for a novelist it comes from the act of creativity and so it's fine if they make a lot of money we will also tax it away like crazy uh, we not ta- you know we we there are billionaires in Scandinavia but uh and and you know well off people the point of, from their Uh, from their set, uh, their value scheme is that from those who have a lot, a lot should be expected. So great. If your creativity happens to result in lots of money, then we should tax lots of that to keep the entrepreneurs coming and to keep everybody going really well. So some of my favorite interviews in the book are with CEOs who are asked, well, how does it feel to be, you know, opening seven new branches you know which is going to bring in more income which is going to mean you pay even more taxes and they say the the point is not um I mean I don't do this uh f- centrally about money I'm happy to have some extra money but what I'm centrally about is manifesting my talent that's what I love to do and this country is so stable and it's so rewarding to live here I just love living here and I don't have to worry about pensions you know because uh, and this is also from aspiring entrepreneurs. I don't have to worry about pensions because everybody has a pension in this country. I don't have to worry about health care because everybody has terrific health care. I don't have to worry about my kids going to university because it's free. So I'm, I'm really supported in this country to do what I love to do.
8: The time when Scandinavia had poor people and a brain drain people trying to go elsewhere because it was so bad to live. What were the first steps economically? that they decided were to prioritize to get to where they are now?
9: Well, first they understood that they needed an alternative vision of an economy. Because if they stayed with the old view of what an economy is like, then they would still get caught, even if they tried to do this or that or the other thing. So they reconceptualized what makes an economy work. And they started by looking at what is the source of wealth. They realized the major source of wealth is actually the worker that the worker pr- being more productive and more innovative is what makes an economy grow. If you, if you really are very bad to workers, you know, if you overwork them, stress them so they can't be innovative anymore, can't even be productive. If if you can hurt workers in such a way that they just are slogging through, right, Mm -hmm. and not even wanting to go to work. Well, but on the other hand, what if you treated workers well? What if you assumed that workers are actually wanting to work under the right conditions with a job that's designed well, for example, Mm -hmm. where they could get that sense of satisfaction from a job well done? In, let's say, a society that gives them the training and education so they can really do that job with zest. You know, oh well, you know, bring me another problem. I'll solve that by noon. You know, (laughs) that kind of thing. And also an economy that's so abundant with jobs that if you get worn out, if you get burned out from your job, let's say you're in your 40s and you say, Oh, I've been doing this so long, that I mean, over there the idea is quit. Get another job. There are plenty of jobs. Try something else. Try something that might be closer to your new, maybe the new passion that you developed. Or maybe, maybe there was always that teenager around, you know, inside you that really wanted to become a lawyer, but you never, you know, you got into this and that. And well, go to law school. It's free.
8: It does sound like nirvana. But you know, I can see where, here's one of the places where I can see where that may not transfer well, is that here in America, we have a vast, vast population. And if as as a social structure and an economic structure, you want to treat the workers as dispensable and replaceable, and if this one doesn't want to keep his job or doesn't want to perform well, there are 14 more lined up who want to take that job, there's less impetus to say, this is a valued commodity. This single worker is a commodity that we need to treasure and work with mm-hmm. because they're not.
9: There's less incentive for the economic elite that benefits from these, all these workers lined up looking for a job, right? But what if your society, your economy is not run by the economic elite and by what their incentives are? But instead, what if it's run by the people as a whole? In other words, what if it's a democratic kind of led, led, led economy mm-hmm. rather than an oligarchic led economy well if you've got a democracy then you can say let's have full employment let's not have those 14 jobless people waiting to get in and let's invest in workers so that they can become more productive and our economy can grow and that's what's really paid off for them so that their workers are actually more productive than ours and their economy outperforms ours and it's not just a new thing. They've been uh, the uh, Swedes and uh, the others have been outperforming the American economy and the British economy, which operates pretty much by these American rules. Um, they, they've been outperforming for 60 years. Yeah. So, from a sheer economic production point of view, productivity point of view, the way to go is the Nordic model. They've really shown us up in international ratings.
11: The economics profession took a very bad turn uh, roughly 150 years ago when it decided that uh, since it wasn't possible to measure happiness or to compare happiness across individuals, we would look basically at uh,
12: consumer preferences. The inspiration to incorporate happiness into economic modeling came from a rather unlikely source. So back
11: in 1971, the fourth king of Bhutan, who uh, also brought democracy to the country, and it was uh, was an extremely extremely wise leader, he raised the question already: Why are we pursuing uh, gross national product when we should be pursuing gross national happiness? It was such a wonderful. Uh, phrase, uh, and GNH uh, entered uh, the vocabulary of a small niche of economists and a small niche of Buddhists and others uh, who were dreaming of this already decades ago. But Bhutan went ahead as a very poor country and actually set up the mechanisms for uh, detailed survey measurement of dimensions of gross national happiness. It set up a Gross National Happiness Commission. It uh, ordered that all legislation uh, should be evaluated, a kind of uh, happiness uh, benefit
12: uh, cost ratio. Sachs began meeting with the king, and they brought more world leaders and economists into the happiness conversation. This ultimately led to the creation of the UN's World Happiness Report, the concept was jarring to many of Sachs's colleagues, particularly in the U.S.
11: Well, in, in our country, we don't uh, talk about almost anything else in the public space. It's all about uh, growth, GDP, incomes. Of course, there is a massive industry of uh, happiness uh, studies, uh, self-help manuals, uh, helping people to overcome all sorts of unhappinesses trying to help people find meaning in their lives, trying to help people
12: make better decisions about their lives. To Sachs, the booming self-help industry in rich countries like the U.S. reveals a disturbing paradox. We have the paradox that income per
11: person rises in the United States, but happiness does not. Uh, And uh, it's not that that's because uh, humans are humans. It's because the U.S. is falling behind, other countries, because we are not pursuing dimensions of happiness that are extremely important. Our physical health, uh, the mental health uh, in our community, the social support, the uh, honesty in government, and this is weighing
12: down uh, American well-being. Like the Danish happiness expert Mike Viking, Sachs finds wisdom in the ancient Greek model. I go with
11: Aristotle. He's my guy. He's my, my favorite philosopher. Uh, and he pointed out uh, in the Nicomachean Ethics uh, 2,300 years ago that to be happy requires uh, the the uh, good uh, benefit of having uh, material needs met. Uh, so don't deny those, he said. But he also said uh, only aiming for wealth uh single-mindedly pursuing uh, higher wealth is certainly no way to happiness. And uh, after a certain point of income, work on other things. Work on your friendship. Work on your mental health. Work on your physical health. Uh, Work on uh, good governance. Work on your charitableness. Uh, Because uh, in in this kind of uh, world, uh, a good life is is a balanced and a virtuous life, not a single-minded pursuit of income.
12: If these are the factors that supposedly generate happiness, community, good mental and physical health, good governance, and since Denmark and the other Nordic countries top the happiness rankings, let's take a look at how they address those factors. Let's start with the social safety net. Mike Viking again.
13: There is obviously uh, universal healthcare. Um, There's also free university education. Uh, in fact, now it's up, a,
12: up through university. Up I mean, th-
13: along from the lower level too. It's always yes, yeah, free, yeah. yeah. So, so heavily subsidized: uh, kindergarten, um, uh, primary school free, uh, high school free, and and university free. And you get a government grant, and that creates also a lot of social mobility. Uh, so there's as a, does healthcare not being tied to a job, which exactly. we have mostly in the states. Exactly.
12: Danes also work fewer hours, on average 27.1 hours per week compared to 34.2 in the U.S. To Helen Russell moving here from Britain, that was a big change.
10: There's no stigma to clocking off. People work mainly from eight till four in offices. There's no stigma to leaving at four because you've got to go and pick up your kids from daycare. You've got to go and make, make supper or you just need to get on with your hobbies.
12: Denmark strives toward egalitarianism on the gender front, and its parental leave policies are famously generous.
10: So there's 52 weeks, both parents can share it between them and you can defer, I think it's 13 weeks of this for, I believe it's up to eight or possibly nine years. So I have a friend whose family are, she has two children and the youngest one is now five, but she's taking 13 weeks off next year to go on a big trip around Australia. And I was outraged by this. I think, oh my goodness, isn't this sort of taking the mick a little bit? She said, no, it's it's perfectly acceptable here. Um, so, yeah, it's just a different mindset, I guess.
11: The basic idea of social democracy is to pay attention to uh, social cohesion, to provide ample social goods like uh, health care available automatically for all, uh, education at all levels available for all,
12: vacation time available for all. Jeff Sachs argues this strong social support in the Nordic model contributes to a number of healthy outcomes. The life expectancy is higher. Our obesity
11: epidemic does not exist in those countries. Our opioid epidemic
13: does not exist in those countries. There is also a high level of trust towards uh, the government. Um, And that goes hand in hand with the Nordic countries being uh, at the low end when it comes to corruption yeah. or perceived corruption, we have a different perception of the state. So what I see from over here, you feel you need to be protected from the state. <laughs> uh, is that, is that a fair assumption? It's uh,
12: a fair assumption for a significant, uh, fraction, at least of Americans, right. let's say not all certainly, okay. but yeah,
13: yeah. And, and people in the Nordic countries will feel that the state protects us from things. Um, the high level of social security is one uh, element that there is a notion that if you fall, you will be picked up. Um, So I think we see more the state on our side um, and, and, and helping us create good conditions for good lives. I was recently in Copenhagen speaking with Mike Viking.
12: Seriously, his real name, Mike Viking who is CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. I'd been hearing about all the factors that make Denmark and the other Nordic countries rank so high on the UN's World Happiness Report, the generous healthcare and childcare and education benefits, the strong levels of social trust, and the HUGA. It was all sounding a bit too good to be true. Wouldn't you think that more governments around the world would look at the Scandinavian model and say, wow, they are thriving economically Mm. and they're thriving on a happiness and life satisfaction level. Let's just do what they're doing. Why do you think
13: it hasn't happened even more? The price tag. (laughs) Um, So I think that the the tax level is is what scares uh, politicians. But I I do sense a larger and larger interest. I, I, I get visits on a weekly basis especially from South Korea, um, I, we, we, we do see a lot of interest in trying to understand what is it that is working so well in the Nordic countries that, that seems to have a positive impact on, on people's lives. Now,
11: one thing that those countries do, which is unimaginable in the U.S. context uh, as of today, they tax themselves
12: and tax themselves. That, again, is the economist Jeff Sachs, an editor of the World Happiness Report.
11: And they end up paying, oh, 45 to 50 percent of national income.
10: A lot of people are paying around 50 percent.
12: And that is the recent British transplant, Helen
10: Russell. I'd say most things, if you're, if you're doing your grocery shop, it's maybe 20 percent more. Goods and services are, are very expensive. Um, so, yeah, life, life is more expensive. There is not very much extra when you've paid for everything.
12: But the data show that high taxes and prices are generally considered
13: worthwhile. Nine out of 10 Danes are happily paying their taxes. There is an acknowledgement that we collectively invest in the public good, and that is fed back to people in terms of quality of life.
10: There is something about the taxes. When you're paying that much tax, you have to trust that this is all going to be worth it. And and like life, you know, we're all trapped by something. We have to choose what we're going to be trapped by. And and for me, that seems quite a good thing to put my, my chips on.
12: One counter argument is that, well, if you have that, what you don't have are the huge rewards for innovation and inventions. So... There are a lot of things that we complain about in the U.S., including income inequality, including the lack of a lot of the social service network that um, a lot of European countries have. But we are the country that makes Apple and Google and on and on and on and on. It seems that there's an upside to status seeking as well as downsides.
10: You're right in terms of accomplishment that there isn't the same incentive perhaps to go the extra mile the, there might be in the UK and the US, I'd say. So I know that, uh, in some places of work, for instance, if your team are working on something, but it's four o'clock, they're going to go home. And so that can be a frustration for people coming from other countries who are used to perhaps, uh, you know, people to, to stay there to really impress, impress the boss or to just do that, that extra bit. I think for me and from, from weighing up the, uh, you know, the pros and cons, that there are always trade offs and the idea that you can have most of the people doing okay and fairly happy well no pr- you know pretty happy actually that that feels sort of worth it rather than a couple of tall poppies and everyone else in the gutter
8: About the evolution of America and, and comparing it to Scandinavia, mm-hmm. one of our audience members asks In the 50s, when the U.S. had a marginal tax over 90%, mm-hmm. public college education was virtually free. Were we then approaching the Scandinavian model?
9: Absolutely, we were indeed. And uh and how exciting that was, right? Because in the thirties the struggle had been so intense and we'd pushed our economic elite back so far, uh and FDR was kind of felt you know he had to go along with that. We instituted social security at that time and so on. And then the war intervened, and then Harry Truman immediately after the war said we need single payer health care, which is what the Nordics have, right? So there was this uh, there was this big shift as a result of a very intense decade in the thirties of struggle. Now the trouble is that that sense that very very strong uh class struggle that was going on in the 30s and that benefited America so much receded and we and and then it was pushed back in 1980 by um Ronald Reagan and in fact that was his job was to lead the counteroffensive and to push back uh, destroy labor if at all possible, push the civil rights back, uh, push the women's movement back because the women's movement was doing way too well in the 70s, right? So it had to be pushed back. Reproductive rights had to be taken away and so on and so on. So Reagan led the charge and that charge has continued, of course, ever since 1980. And the Democrats have been uh, playing defense this whole time. So, if the, uh, so is the Labor Party, so is the women's movement pretty much, the environmental movement, playing defense, defense, defense. And, uh, you know, something that gandhi uh, taught me but also military generals agree nobody ever learned l- 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 nobody ever won anything on the defence
14: right
9: you only win on the offence and so the Democrats and the, some of our major movements, having chosen to go on the defense against this onslaught that we've been experiencing means that we've lost ground, lost ground, lost ground, lost ground. Women's movement lost ground, environmentalists lost ground, labor movement lost ground, similar, so on, so on, so on, so much losing ground, except for the LGBT uh-huh. movement, which has gained ground this whole time. And, and what do we
8: derive from that?
9: Well, the LGBT movement stayed on the offensive even in the 80s when Ronald Reagan's uh, uh, ch- choice to pretend uh, uh, AIDS didn't exist, right? right? And what happens? Act up. <laughs> and a very strong charge of LGBT people against the pharmaceuticals, you know, and to bring responsibility to uh, the medical profession and so on, fighting, 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 fighting. And they never stopped, right? Mm-hmm. So I shouldn't say they, because actually I'm a gay man. So very proud of my, my times in jail and, the, and that struggle. And it, it's just continued marriage equality, for example, right? On the offensive. Uh, equality in the military, on the offensive. Now it's trans, right? It's about bathrooms in some, some <laughs> states, right? <laughs> it's push, push, push. So there's a big lesson we can learn from that, which is do not go on the defensive. It doesn't matter what, what tweeting is coming out of the Oval Office. Do not go on the defensive, go on the offensive. So if you think Obamacare is an improvement over the olden days, which it is, don't defend it. Instead, push for Medicare for all. Because that's going on the offensive. Bernie Sanders is exactly right on that. And, and in each case, when they come after us and try to push us back, our resolve needs to be to follow the LGBT success and go on the offensive instead. And that's a way that we can keep winning. And then we will be the kind of folks that are, you know, our ancestors were in the thirties who were pushing, pushing, pushing and winning, winning, winning. But the
8: situation we're in now, and again, I'm, t- I'm taking your lesson on, on playing offense instead of defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Republicans have said once again that as part of their next budget plan, they're going to try to disembowel Obamacare. I, I am no politician, but I'm having trouble imagining what it looks like to play offense when you have a vision as remote from where we are now as single payer and with what little improvement we have found, there's a genuine organized effort to disembowel that. So mm-hmm. while this is happening to your current plan, how do you turn it around And play offense while at the same time defending the little ground that you have won.
9: Right. You don't defend the little ground. What you do is you go after the culprits. And the real culprits are the big pharma. (laughs) Right? Which makes obscene amounts of money, right? And uh, private hospitals and especially private insurance companies, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, those can be gone after. So the mistake that's being made now is to go after politicians. But why go after the puppets if you know there are puppet masters above manipulating the strings? So what you do, I'm told that in California for example, there's a bill that's being held up, right? Well, why is it being held up? It's because politicians have been bought. And this is an old story all over the country, right? So that a single payer can't move forward into California. So go after the purchasers of the politicians. So why aren't don't we have nonviolent direct action in all the Rite A's or in all the CVS's? You know? Uh, Right? Why aren't we occupying the city of Hartford, Connecticut, where (laughs) private healthcare systems, you know, have enormous skyscrapers? Right. right. Why aren't we going after, in other words, the people who really need to take the responsibility and are evading responsibility by making the politicians take the brunt of our ire? Mm -hmm. So that is what going on the offensive looks like. And that's what worked for the Nordics. The Nordics didn't bother with the politicians, they knew they were bought. So they went after the economic entities that were actually behind the uh, politicians, and that's how they won their struggle, and mm-hmm. that's how we can win our struggle.
1: These
8: countries are largely parliamentary, is that correct? Yes, yes they par- So how much of what we're talking about within a parliamentary system would transfer to a uh, representative democracy slash republic that we have here?
9: I think a Congress could work here if Congress uh, uh, members were accountable to the people.
1: hmm
8: and we, he's eliminating the people it. they're really accountable to. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> instead
9: of accountable to the economic elite, right? Mm. So that's why it's so important to learn for the, and why the I'm the only writer about the Nordics that actually tells the story of how they made their transformation. And it and I don't understand why the others don't do it because the heart of the matter is that they made a power shift. They actually pushed the economic elite out of the way out of its historic dominance, right? Mm -hmm. So that then Parliament, members of Parliament, could uh, be, or or the the political parties, let's say, that are in Parliament, are accountable to the people rather than accountable to the economic elite. And uh, in fact, the labor movement in those countries didn't even start a labor party until they had a strong enough movement that they could say, we are going to create a party that is strictly held accountable by us. And if a member of Parliament starts to get, you know, oh, get wifty and oh, yeah, come off on their own uh, up in the stratosphere somewhere, we will throw them out and replace them with somebody who is accountable to us. And that's why the Democratic Party in the U.S. can never do what we need it to do because it's not accountable to us. It's accountable to the economic elite. We would need to create a people's movement that knows how to, for example, go after the pharmaceuticals and go after the healthcare system and win and win and win and win. And, win, and therefore, uh, shift the power so that then we could create parties That would be decent parties in Congress, and those parties would do what we want because they are put in there by us.
8: Well, it's interesting to hear that in their history, they had the influence of the 1% that they had to buck. Oh, they had to. What lessons are transferable about how to do that?
9: How do that? One thing, number one, vision. They had a vision of what they wanted. So they weren't driven by protests. The people weren't like, we don't like this, we don't like this, so let's protest, protest. Instead it was, what we do want instead is X, our vision. Now let's fight for that. Mm -hmm. Number two, they were willing to fight. So they took the fight to... What they felt was their opponent, the 1%, and they went after economic entities. So they went after the banks, they went after the shipbuilders, they went after the industrial concerns, and so on, and took the fight to them rather than pretend that the parliament would take care of them. Uh, and that's a huge lesson for us to learn. And they also chose, remember, these are nations very close to Russia. So they had experienced the Russian revolution just on the other side of the border, right? Mm -hmm. And the horrible uh, you know, amount of violence and and suffering that resulted from that. So they decided uh we will do a nonviolent kind of struggle. Even if we agree with some of the goals that the the communists had, and some of the especially in Norway, some of the folks were communists. They said, but still it's clear that the method of armed struggle is flawed Mm -hmm. and therefore we have to do nonviolent struggle. So they took to the streets, they disrupted their countries so fully that the economic elite had to abandon power because they said, hey, our country will not be ruled by us. That's very clear.
8: It's amazing to think about that shift of power. And I'm thinking about right now, our, you know, our system is we we have our, our checks and balances. We have our, our three entities of government. But you can see how the further we go down the road, of well, where we are going, mm-hmm. uh, for example, if we want to appeal to a legal system, we're looking at a legal system that has a lot of empty seats, and the judicial system has a lot of empty seats, and those that are being filled are being filled in one case with a lawyer who's never tried a case, who's never been in a court. And I, I can't help but wonder, so much of this sounds really optimistic and marvelous, but I also wonder about how far gone our own system is to where some of that just won't work.
9: Well, uh the one reason why I'm so excited about this uh tour that I'm doing, it's mm-hmm. now been a year and a half. I've been in half the estates of the, this country, four foreign countries as well. But I'm especially concerned about this country because we're experiencing polarization. Mm-hmm. Right? Tremendous polarization. Nazism is growing, white supremacy and so on. And at the same time, um far left is growing. And so and and everything in between is like, ah what are you right? So yeah. it's, it's so it looks uh, on the one hand, ugly right? I mean, a lot of ugly manifestations of this polarized period. And also people can make the wrong conclusion that it stymies us, that it's going to stop us from making for progress. What the Nordic message is that they made their breakthroughs at the times of their greatest polarization. When Nazis were marching in the streets, when communists eager to overthrow the, uh, 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 you know, establish the dictatorship of proletariat were in the streets. Like, they had this tremendous polarization in the 20s and the 30s. And that was exactly the period they were nevertheless able, the majority now, mm-hmm. the majority was nevertheless able to get rid of the uh, dominance of the economic elite and establish the The vision they had, Mm -hmm. the vision of Nordic model. And so that's just a phenomenal breakthrough time for them. And so I'm excited about us. I'm seeing polarization not as something that stymies us, but instead that heats our body politic up, Mm -hmm. gets us animated. It's volatile. I stayed in England with a blacksmith. He showed me his hearth. He showed me his equipment. And I said, I got it. You've given me my main metaphor. Because in order to turn metal, into useful stuff like horseshoes and metal sculptures, which is mainly what you do, you have to have heat. Well, that's what my country has now. We have (laughs) about as much heat as we can stand, right? But there's going to be more heat because polarization is nurtured by inequality, economic inequality. Mm -hmm. And everything's set up for that, right? More and more economic inequality. Okay, that means more and more heat. Yes, on the one hand, it means more ugliness, I don't like that. It means more killing. I don't like that. On the other hand, it also means the volatility that enables hard metal to be turned into something useful. And that's our opportunity today.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Counterspin, speaking with Dean Baker about the legitimacy of higher tax rates as a policy option. Pitchfork Economics spoke with Bruce Bartlett, former proud Republican and tax policy expert who realized that they stopped being serious about fiscal responsibility and ditched them. The Zero Hour explained how the Democratic Party became Eisenhower Republicans. Freakonomics Radio looked into the economics of happiness and finally we just heard In Deep with Angie Koiro talking in two parts with George Lakey about Viking economics and the hope he gets from the polarization we're experiencing right now. Members will be getting a bonus episode with some more sort of casual conversations on these topics. I just started reading the book The Nordic Theory of Everything which I highly recommend from what I've heard so far so I'm going to talk about that a bit and I have some member voicemails to play and respond to so we're just going have a nice little chat about all of that. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the six dollar level. If that's too steep for you, consider getting the show ad free for only two bucks a month. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit Patreon.com/slash BestOfLeft for all of the details. Of course, you can. To find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now we'll hear from you.
15: Hey, hello, it's Dave from Olympia, Washington. The most recent episode, twelve fifty-one. Uh, your commentary at the end kind of continued the discussion around why people support the candidates that they support. And that's a bizarrely complicated discussion. But the accusation of some mysterious reason underlining your support for a candidate. So you you support Clinton because you're racist and you don't like Barack Obama. You support Barack Obama because you're sexist and you don't like Clinton. You don't support Kamala Harris because of all of the above. You support Bernie because you're sexist. I think in some ways you're right, like the percentage of everyone's sexist in some way, we, we are indoctrinated, but the, you know, the percentages are probably pretty consistent with society at large. You're not going to see, you know, more vehement, not having been enculturated into a sexist society, but out and out sexist. In the group of Bernie supporters, you know it's probably going to be a little better, but it's probably going to be similar to the underlying society. You know it's probably going to be similar to U.S. society. But the mistake and the cognitive mistake is was either just the the correlation fallacy or the the one cause fallacy. It's like there are sexists among Bernie supporters, therefore all Bernie supporters are sexist and. They're only burning supporters because they're sexist. The one cause, and just to make it neutral here, I think Bernie supporters are much more susceptible to seeing everything emanate from economic disparities. You know, all of that. If we just, if we could just fix economic disparities, it'd be great. You know, it's like a, a fundamental denial of the concept of intersectionality if you think about it, but. You know, it's like uh, racial injustice. Well, we just will fix economic injustice and that will get solved, too. Wars of aggression. Well, we just fix economic injustice and that will get solved, too. There are probably some individuals that see sexism in this way. You know, it's like it all comes down to sexism and sexism is the root cause to everything. And if we can fix sexism, then we can, you know, stop war. We'll uh, be able to... uh, you know, have health care for everyone, teachers will be respected, unions will be back, and it's all this root cause. And, you know, causes are complicated. It's a big thing. But the the irrationality of looking at a characteristic group may or may not have. They may, in fact, be sexist. But that's not why they support Bernie. Um, they support Bernie because they, you know, support the policies, generally. Um... I'm uh, losing my train of thought. Anyhow, stay awesome. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.
14: Hi, Jay. This is Marguerite from Fortuna, California. I'm calling about your um, Candidate Spotlight with Harris and Warren. And I'm also kind of disappointed at how they were presented. As far as I can tell, listening to it, it kind of came off as Harris, bad, Warren good. And I think it was in the presentation, they were pretty unevenly presented. All the clips of Harris were people uh, doing critiques of her and of her history and her policies, versus all of the clips of Warren actually had Warren speaking for herself at some point. Two of them included a commercial, one of them actually included an interview. And I think there are concerns and there are um, some things to be worried about with Ms. Harris, I think there were also some things to be concerned about with um, Ms. Warren, but the fact that they were presented so unevenly um, does make one think about what the first person brought up, which is Massage Noir, or the fact that she is presented differently because she is a woman of color president. And the fact that I even have to think that is a concern. That shouldn't be a question. So I do hope that in future one space if you do them that at least they can be equal in the fact that you have candidates speaking from themselves and in interviews and Kamala Harris has done interviews and had a whole town hall that could have been drawn from, and that we could see that of both candidates and there isn't even a question of is this candidate being treated differently because of either the minority status or because they are women thanks bye
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I know that the show has gone long. I I get excited about raising taxes, so I, I couldn't help but let the show go a little bit long. I'm going to Try to keep my comments relatively short, but I did want to respond to Marguerite. I couldn't quite tell if she was responding only directly to the candidate spotlight episode or if she also heard the episode that followed and my comments there. She referred to someone who had already brought up, uh, she said, as the first person brought up Massage Noir. I, so, I wasn't actually sure who she was referring to, but I'll respond to the concept in general. And I completely understand her perspective that like it's troubling to even have that idea cross one's mind. I totally get it. So I'll say a couple of things, first about the show and then about my own perspective. First of all, the show is clearly neither a pure representation of my perspective because it's influenced by what everyone else is saying. That's the whole point of the show. Nor is it a pure representation of what other people are saying because it's influenced by me as the editor. So so it's, it's this combination of both. So I think I can say very strongly that neither sexism nor racism nor the combination of the two influences my perception of candidates. I, I think that I am really passionately dedicated to caring about policies, and I don't really care who has those policies. So I can say that about myself. I cannot say that about anyone else because I don't know anyone else's heart. I don't know where people are coming from. I I, I go based on experience and instinct to uh, judge who I can trust and who I can't. But if other hosts are saying things because of deeply ingrained sexism and racism, I can't know that for sure. So the, the fact, as I explained in the previous episode, the fact that Harris commentary was so profoundly negative I don't know to what degree that is because her policies and and past experience is very legitimately criticized and therefore that's what people focused on or if there was some sexism and racism tied up in that or some combination of those factors and you know as, as Dave from Olympia was saying like clearly none of this is one factor it, it's a fallacy to say that there's one cause for any of this so that's the show. I mean, the show gets put together. It's me. It's everyone else. It gets brought together. It's messy. People's experiences and motivations are are opaque, and you can't really tell where people are coming from. And so it it came out the way it came out. And I already explained in the previous episode that you know I didn't go out to cherry pick positive for Warren, negative for Harris. That that really was what was out there. But as previous commenters and Marguerite say now, like. I could have gone out of my way to find positive stuff, uh, and and I didn't. But again, I already explained in the previous episode why I didn't and and just sort of how that happened. Now, what I'll say about myself is I'm not sure if I ever brought this up. Maybe it never seemed relevant. Or if I did, it was years and years and years ago. But I will tell you my perspective on candidates who are either not men, because all of our presidents have been men or not white, uh, you know, of color of some degree. I'll, I'll tell you first about Harris, that the first thing I ever heard about her was that she was a woman of color. And my first thought was, oh, good, that's great. I'm, I'm really excited that there's a woman of color. If she's a good candidate, that's like, that could be the perfect combination of uh, getting lots of different groups excited and Aside from the fact that we just need some more diversity in our leadership and our succession of presidents, etc. So my, my first thought was, okay, great. If she's a good candidate, I'm really excited about that. And then immediately after, I started hearing about her policies and really started having doubts like really quickly because I was hearing a lot of negative things about her as compared to the strongly progressive candidates who I know are out there and are viable. So that was my first thought about Harris. But to give you sort of deeper context for my perception of how race plays into my perspective on politicians, I heard a caller call into a show years ago. I mean, it could literally be a decade ago. It might be 2009, 2010, 2011, sometime in that range. The super excitement about Obama among strong progressives had really simmered down and we had had a lot of things happen that we were disappointed about. And uh, when that excitement level had dipped, I heard this caller call into a show and say, do you think that we as like white progressives actually applied a little bit of, there's not a good word for it, but sort of reverse racism against Obama, not like, Reverse racism against whites or like secretly disliking Obama. I mean, reverse racism. Like, did we like him more because he was black? Did we think, well, you know, he's, he's campaigning as like, he's campaigning for change, which is great. But did we, did we project onto him more progressivism than he deserved? Maybe even more radicalism than he deserved because he was black. I heard that caller say that, just sort of pose this question, and it really resonated with me. I think that I fell into that category myself. I think that I was more excited about Obama than he deserved for me to be because he was black, and I thought— I think he might be even better than he sounds. I think he might be even more progressive, even more radical than he sounds, because he's going to get in there and he's going to have his like general progressive policies. But the fact that he's black means that he's got this this extra dimension of experience that that's going to bring whatever his his uh, his policy making his his whatever progressive ideals are going to uh, come forward more strongly. Like I had those kind of hopes. And I think that, I mean, I hope that I've learned that lesson and that I won't do that again. Uh, I I think it's obviously wrong to discredit people (laughs) based on the color of their skin. And after Obama, I now realize really clearly it's wrong to give someone extra credit based on the color of their skin. But in terms of race and politicians, that's actually the direction I lean. I don't lean like, I'm going to be more critical of black people. I actually lean, I bet they're going to be better than I even think they are, just as a general sense. So for myself, I think I can say pretty strongly, I don't think that sexism and racism are playing into my perspective on candidates like Kamala Harris. I actually tend to uh, lean in the other direction. Like, I'm, I'm going to give someone like that even more leniency, more credit than they even deserve. Although, as I say, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn that lesson. So ultimately where I come down is I only care about policies. I don't care about anything else. However, all things being equal, if all policy proposals are equal, if the candidates are are equal in their progressivism and, and they are equal in, in how much I think they will do the things I want them to do in that case, I would fall back to a second-tier preference, which is for there to be more diversity. In, in that case, I would prefer a person of color, a woman, etc. So if-, if Congresswoman Barbara Lee were running, if, if she wanted her uh, vice presidential candidate to be Angela Davis, like that's a candidate I could get excited about. Kamala Harris is not Barbara Lee. And apparently, she's not even Elizabeth Warren. So, as I said, policies first, all policies being equal, give me as much diversity as you can give me. But the way things are shaking out, it doesn't seem like all things are equal at the moment. I certainly welcome more comments on this. If you have thoughts you want to share, either call into the voicemail line or email me directly, j at bestoftheleft.com, and the number to dial... 202-999-3991. Two zero two nine 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 three nine nine one. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at Patreon.com/slash BestOfLeft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode.